This is an ABC podcast. All right. This is going to be good, isn't it? I loved this book. Put that effing book down. You know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. She's a furious woman. <laughs> I'm reading it and reading it and mm-hmm. I'm going, oh no. So I thought I really have to hook the reader. It's taken up half my heart, you know. The book actually put a hex on me. Hello and thanks for joining me for a podcast extra edition of ABC Radio National's The Bookshelf. I'm Kate Evans and today a conversation with English writer Graham Swift. His books include Waterland, Last Orders and The Light of Day. But I'll confess it's his short novel Mothering Sunday that left me in awe for its beauty, tracking just one day in the life of a woman, Jane, a domestic servant and later a writer. And his most recent novel, Here We Are, has both melancholy and effervescence in it, set partly on a vaudeville stage. Here We Are. Here We Are. The title changes depending on the emphasis you place on the words. I wanted to ask Graeme Swift about his reading and influences, but also about his writing and those periods of change and haunting and fading that seem to interest him so much. Graeme Swift, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. Well, thanks for inviting me onto it. Congratulations on Here We Are, a novel that begins in the wings at a theatre watching a performance. Now, why there? Why that world? You've asked a very natural question, and I don't want to disappoint you, but I have to be honest and say I really don't know. This is true of many of the beginnings of my uh, novels or stories. I can't really emphasise too much how they suddenly just happen. They take me by surprise without any premeditation. They are suddenly there. They weren't there the day before, but suddenly I'm dealing with them. Uh, I can't really explain how or why such things happen, but I'm very glad that they do. And I think that to be surprised into writing something is the best possible way to begin writing something. One of the things that struck me about this novel of yours is that it's not just about any type of performance. It's the sort of faded end of vaudeville by the sea in what you call the rough, glittery, hopeful, deluded, stage-struck, thankless, magical business. And I wondered what that sort of rough, glittery, deluded end of things offers you as a writer. Well, I mean, obviously, it it must have attracted me in some way. It must have impelled me in some way. Uh, It's, I think, the first time in any of my fiction that I've dealt so directly and intimately with what you might call show business, uh, with the world of the theatre, and in this case, obviously, a theatrical world of some time ago, the late 1950s which is very early in my own life. Um, Something must have drawn me to it. I've been drawn in other books of mine to the seaside. That has certainly featured before. A large part of Here We Are is set not just in Brighton, but actually on Brighton Pier and in a theatre 
on that pier, uh, and a lot of the action happens in it. I was drawn in some way to the world of entertainment, um, and that's perhaps because in the end, though I'm not a song and dance man by any means, I am a kind of entertainer myself. And that glittery hopefulness of fiction is something that you take us into. But then there's a sort of poignant edge to this novel as well, because it also explores what you call that great swamping confusion of childhood. And particularly for the character of Ronnie, who's sent away in in World War II. And you've written about both the war and the immediate post-war period a number of times. Again, is there something about that that interests you particularly? Definitely. I I was born just in the first half of the 20th century. I was born in 1949. So I grew up in the 50s. And I grew up in the fairly immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And my parents lived through it. Fortunately, they survived. My father fought in it. And I've always felt that that war is just behind me. Even now, decades later, I feel its presence kind of at my shoulder. And I think it's been my very big and fundamental history lesson. It's been the thing that has told me that ordinary little lives can be swept away by the great events of world history. It always meant that to me. And I've always had a sense, though very fortunately, I've had a life that's been very peaceful I've always had a sense of how war and conflict is always going on somewhere in the world. There is a lot of writing that is haunted by World War II, not necessarily explicitly about it, but in the the shadow of it and the aftermath. Are there other books that deal with that sort of long haunting of World War II that are particularly important to you? Um, I'm sure there are quite a few. A book that does come to mind and is to do with the Second World War comes to mind because I read it quite recently. I have a feeling it it might have been mentioned on your show before. It's by a German writer, uh, but it was recently published in English translation. The writer is Walter Kemposki. The title of the book, I think, is called All for Nothing. And it's a novel that's set in East Prussia, a peculiar part of Germany at the time, and the time is towards the end of the Second World War, when basically the Russians were coming. And it's a novel which is all about how people desperately cling, deludedly cling to a sense of normality, even when normality is about to be blown apart. It's a novel certainly about the Second World War, but it does have a relevance to stuff that is going on now. Uh, I think the whole world is trying to cling to a sense of normality while around us things are getting less and less normal. Just to, to turn back briefly to um, Here We Are, 
Are there other books that you would sit sort of next to or behind it in terms of a particular context or interest or even set a sort of idea of antecedents of to that book? What what would you put next to that latest novel of yours? I honestly don't think there are any. <laughs> um, I'm I really am not aware of any book, books or author, authors that in any way uh, impelled me to write Here We Are or were, as it were, hovering around me as I wrote uh, this novel. Um, it just wasn't like that. And it didn't have any particular uh, sort of antecedents of any other kind. It, it just happened. And I do feel that that's more and more the case with me, that um, if I ever once uh, sort of needed, how to put it, kind of the guardian angels of other writers around me, I think that time has passed. And I now simply do my own thing in my own way, in my own voice. As I have said, I, I do it less and less with any a sense of premeditation and intention. I, it, this will sound very odd, but I think a writer's life, or my writer's life, consists of long periods of just waiting and of being patient and trusting that something will arrive and take me by surprise, and then I will feel fired to write it. And I think I've learned more and more that writing... Good writing isn't really done by determination and willpower and wishing and all of that. It's done in a much more mysterious way, which just arrives. And that was as true of Mothering Sunday, uh, my previous novel, as it's true of Here We Are. Well, can I ask you about Mothering Sunday, that beautiful book, and that extraordinary day, 30th of March, 1924. And I'll confess, I love a book that explores work with such intimacy and the day-to-day work that Jane Fairchild does. How do you see her now, this creation of yours? Um, well, I, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you make that point about work because I'm not very keen on a certain kind of novel where people appear not to do any work at all. They exist in some sort of workless environment. Um, Work is very much part of people's lives, so it should be part of of fiction too. In the case of Mothering Sunday, my central character in that novel, who's called Jane, there are two kinds of work of which you can say it's remarkable that they ever combined. Jane starts her life, we're in the 1920s, in the aftermath of the First World War. She starts her life in an orphanage. She becomes uh, a housemaid and uh, might very easily have continued in service, as it was called, throughout her life. But something happens inside her which sows the seed of her becoming a writer. 
against all the social odds. Um, so it's partly a book about her being a housemaid, um, but it evolves into a book about someone becoming a writer. Incidentally, that's the kind of book that once I thought I would never write, <laughs> never want to write. Why should I, a writer, want to write someone about someone becoming a writer? Um, how kind of unimaginative is that? But this, again, comes back to the element of surprise. I could never have imagined writing about a housemaid in the 1920s, but suddenly I was, and this same housemaid becomes a writer, and that, among other things, became the kind of core of that novel. But also books themselves are involved. I mean, this is a yeah. novel full of other books and libraries. And so as a housemaid, she notices the well-thumbed books in the libraries yes. that she cleans, books by people like R.M. Ballantyne and Kipling. And so I wonder exactly. why it was important to have those books in particular on the shelves. Well, first of all, I, I mentioned that she was brought up in a an orphanage, fortunately for her, in quite a good orphanage where she actually got an education and indeed learned to read, which wouldn't have happened in every case. I think that housemaid though she is, she's actually a very intelligent woman and she comes equipped with a very basic education and she comes also equipped with a sense of her own possibility. Uh, so she can, even while being a housemaid, begin to see a life beyond being a housemaid. And for her, it's to do with books and writing. And she is partly um, assisted in this uh, just beginning uh, ambition or desire by the fact that in the house where she's a housemaid, there is a library and she is allowed by her em employer to actually take books from this library and, and read them. And the books she takes, the books she gravitates towards, are not the kind of dusty tomes on the shelves, but a few books which were once read by two boys, as they then were, who lived in this house, part of the family, who sadly went off of the First World War and never came back. Those are the books that Jane reads. Obviously, they have the poignancy of being the books of these dead boys, and they have their names inscribed in them. But there is this irony that Jane, this woman, is, as it were, brought up as a writer on boys' books, on boys' adventure stories, like R.M. Ballantyne and Treasure Island and several classic books, but books that were available at the time in the early 20th century. Uh, and that was the early fuel of Jane's own writing. But it's Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island that has a particular impact on her. And I wondered if that was an important book for you as a reader. Uh, I'm sure I... Well, I know I would have read it, but I wouldn't say that it's had a, any particular lasting, lingering, special effect on me. But are there books that you 
can point to that you think have been particularly formative in your imagination or in your development as a writer? And I mean, at any point in your life, whether it was last year or reading when you were 20 or 30, I mean, are there particular books that you would put on a sort of top shelf of influences on you? Well, uh, there is certainly one, uh, and I've written about it, one author. I published a book of non-fiction pieces, and one of the pieces is about this author. Um, but before I turn to him, I would generally say, obviously most authors read, and they are influenced by what they read, uh, often unconsciously, sometimes consciously. That's how it works. It's perfectly natural, just as my character Jane is influenced by those those. Uh, adventure stories. Um, but I have always felt that the other writers who are most important and most meaningful are not the ones that influence you in any, uh, let's say, technical way, but simply the ones that, for whatever reason, they just re ignite or they reignite your own desire to write yourself. And they're obviously writers that you're most likely to encounter, as it were, uh, quite early in your life. And when I was uh, only just 18, I was actually in Greece. I was in northern Greece, generally bumming around. I picked up a book by a Russian writer, obviously an English translation, called, now in English I would say, Isaac Babel. But I think in Russian, his name is more like Isaac Babel. Uh, and he was a writer of short stories in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, and very sadly, he didn't have a long life because he fell foul of Stalin, like so many people, writers included. And he just disappeared. In fact, he was, he was executed. And his work was banned, was not available in Russia for decades, uh, although it was available in English translation. So I picked up this book. I'd never heard of this man at that time. The book was called Red Cavalry and Other Stories, and I was just completely electrified by it. It was amazing stuff. And it fired me in my own then, I was still a would-be writer really at that time, in my own desire to be a writer. And it's, he's a writer that I've always felt is somehow uh, a guardian angel, to use a phrase I used before. Um, one of those writers who, when you read them, you almost feel as though you've met them or you have a kind of, fantastical feeling that if you had met them, you would somehow have got on, even though the man I'm talking about is a writer quite unlike myself in terms of actual writing, and obviously in terms of the the life, the short life and circumstances he had. But he was very important to me. And do you reread his work, and is it still as thrilling? Uh, occasionally I do, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a very good photograph of him 
Um, I have actually had that photograph on my desk. Um, that's not true of many writers at all. Um, so I would dip into his stories from time to time. Are there other writers who've been as important just in the way that they make you feel as a reader? Um, I don't think there's ever been one who had quite such a impact uh, as as he did at the time. But I think that has a great deal to do with my age and even the business of reading him in a foreign country. Um, it was just one of those moments that kind of needed to occur at that time. So it's quite exceptional. But of course, there are many, many writers that I admire and I draw some kind of nourishment from and I would um, keep dipping into now and then, especially in these strange times in which we, uh, we are at home a lot. One thing we can do is read. Are you able to easily read now? Because I've spoken to some people who find these strange pandemic times have made it, they've either wanted to reread books they're familiar with or some people are only reading poetry. I mean, has it changed your reading at all? I don't think so. I don't think essentially. Um, I, uh, I mean, nor has it changed my writing life, essentially. I mean, writers are quite fortunate at the moment uh, because after all, as I'm sure other guests of yours have already said, uh, in order to write, writers have to put themselves in a kind of lockdown in the first place. We have to be quite isolated in order to concentrate. So in a sense, what's new, I think where it has affected writers um, for the worst is where they are actually publishing a book or putting a book in the pipeline. But if they just have to get on with their present project, they can still do that. Um, and I don't feel any less or more of a writer because of what's going on at the moment than I've always done. Uh, and as for reading, well, yeah, I, I've always read as well as writing. I, I, I read and I, I still do the reading now. Um, and I don't know that my reading material has particularly changed because of what's going on in the world. Um, it might be that I have done a bit more dipping into those really great writers that offer a kind of constant sustenance than usual, but not necessarily. Is there anything else that you've read recently that has had a big impact on you, something that you've just loved? Uh, well, I, I've already mentioned that book by Kempowski. Um So that's a, a book that was new for me. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I've been dipping into old favourites like, um, for example, I've been rereading quite a lot of Montaigne's essays one of my favorite writers. And I always read him in, obviously not in the original French, but in a contemporary translation by a man called John Florio, which is in its own right wonderful Elizabethan prose. 
And that is also the version that Shakespeare would have read. That's quite a thrill to read the very language of an author that Shakespeare himself would have read and drawn on. But Montaigne is a wonderful lockdown author. I mean, first of all, he wrote these countless essays on every subject under the sun. He's got this encyclopedic range. But the great thing about Montaigne, which is a big contrast actually from Shakespeare, is that he's always present. Everything you read, whatever the subject, it's as though Montaigne is in the same room that you're in. And he refers everything he writes about to his own experience in this wonderful way, uh, wonderfully entertaining and wonderfully wise and shrewd way. And you feel he's your companion all the time. So what better for a lockdown to take you through to when there's a vaccination? There's so many essays. And uh, he's the absolute opposite of Shakespeare. In what way? Shakespeare, uh, we don't know Shakespeare the person. We don't feel Shakespeare the person when we read a play or watch a play. He disappears in his creation, in his characters, in his drama. He's not a companion. He is a genius. He does something wonderful. But you don't feel with Shakespeare that he's actually there with you. Uh, so there are a couple of authors, great authors, who complement each other. Uh, they both give you extraordinary stuff in a very different way. Well, that's a pretty great collection that you've given me. So, Graeme Swift, <laughs> thank you so much for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Graham Swift, whose novel Here We Are was published by Scribner in March of this year. Shakespeare, Montaigne, Walter Kampowski and more. I love hearing writers talk about their reading. And he mentioned Scottish writer Robert Louis Stevenson there, author of Kidnapped, Treasure Island, The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. And it was Stevenson's birthday just last week. He was born in 1850 and died in 1894, and I keep seeing references to his work everywhere. Helen Garner talks about him twice in her latest published diary, One Day I'll Remember This. I'm Kate Evans, and this has been a podcast extra edition of The Bookshelf. Why not pass it on to a friend, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss out on the many books and writers we feature each week. Meanwhile, Keep reading. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.